Guys, welcome back to the After Action Review. You know me, I'm Nick Guy, painfully mediocre. And as per usual, we bring on far more than mediocre guests. Today we have retired Major General Clay Hutmacher, who has probably one of the probably one of the most fascinating career stories um, I've ever heard. He and I were kind of just talking before we hit record and what what a progression of a career. Um, but beyond that, you guys probably know him as, as the president of the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Uh, and we'll get a little more into that towards the end. But a, a really great uh, nonprofit. Uh, and and we'll, 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 we'll dive deeper into that. But, sir, just wanted to say thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, it's a pleasure. So, uh, you know, let's just start right from the beginning. You, you told me 41, just shy of 41 years in the military, which is incredible. If anybody has spent a day in the military, they know sometimes a year can feel like a lifetime. To do 41 is, that's special. So, I mean, how, how, does, how does one survive 41 years in, in the military? Where does it all start? Well, maybe uh, a little bit of skill, a lot of luck and some superb timing, I think, would be the case for me. <laughs> right place at the right time. Uh, it was, it, you know, retiring as a major general was never a goal of mine. Uh, it was, you know, it was never my career ambition. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17. I had to get my parents' signature on my enlistment form. And when I got down to a Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, it wasn't quite the warm and embracing uh, reception that I anticipated. And, uh, and immediately came to the conclusion that I made a serious mistake uh, with regards to this commitment, but I just, I guess I had just a little bit too much pride to ever tell anyone else my conclusions and I just blundered through day to day. Uh, and you know, I, that was my introduction to the military. I, uh, I spent, you know, six and a half years in the Corps. I, I was started out at, went to Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, went to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to second Marine division, uh, spent a year, a little over a year there, got to, uh, transferred to Okinawa, Japan, third Marine division. Uh, for those Marines out there, I was a Camp Schwab, first track vehicle battalion. And then I re-enlisted, went to Marine Barracks, Whidbey Island, Washington, and spent some time there and then got picked up for flight school. But the Marine Corps being the Marine Corps, they said, well, we'll let you go to flight school in the Army, but we want you to go back to Okinawa for another 18-month uh, tour. Uh, so I did that and came back. Went to the separation center at Camp Pendleton, was picked up by an army recruiter, spent the night with some 18-year-old kid at the MEPS Hotel in San Diego, and showed up at uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama. They didn't even give me a pink ID card because I had over six years, so I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the army. I didn't in at all. Uh, but it was a great move for me. I went through flight school, graduated flight school as a UH-60 pilot in June of 85 and went to the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, I was actually a medevac pilot and really enjoyed that mission. It was a lot of single ship work and, you know, interesting work, a lot of night vision goggle uh, flying, which I enjoyed. But I, I quickly realized that 
and I'm not slamming warrant officers, though I do like to make fun of warrant officers every chance I get since I'm a former warrant and I feel empowered to do just that. I, uh, I miss the leadership aspect of it. I loved flying, but I, I felt like uh, I wanted to also play a leadership role. And time was running out for me. I had to be commissioned by the beginning of my 10th year. You have to back it back then. I don't know if it's still a rule, but you had to complete 10 years of commissioned service within a 20 year period was the rule. And so I graduated officer candidate school as a second lieutenant in aviation with nine years, 10 months and two weeks. Uh, I had applied for the uh, 160th special ops aviation regiment. They normally don't take second lieutenants, but they uh, allowed, they agreed to assess me because I was a former warrant, I already had about 800 and some hours of flight time. Uh, and it worked out. I went straight there as a second lieutenant and uh, stayed in special ops aviation from that period as a second lieutenant in different units all the way through till I was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, I, I was the first platoon leader of an aircraft we call the DAP, the Direct Action Penetrator, which is an armed. MH60. You know, funny story there. Uh, we took uh, myself, Cliff Walcott was flying with me and he was killed in Somalia on Super 61. A very dear friend of mine. In fact, my middle son is Mitchell Walcott Hutmacher. And um, we, were, we were notified. We, were, we had just done a big rehearsal for the operation in Panama. And we had Literally that Sunday, I was the last C-5 that got back. I was watching uh, football. We got alerted for Panama. And Cliff and I, I was a platoon leader, and Cliff was my platoon standardization pilot. We knew that the AH-6s uh, had all their ammo committed, so we brought our own pallet of ammo, rockets. We had one DAP. Uh, and we, we came down there to Panama and we, you know, had visions of glory. We were going to use this thing and do some attack ops. And our regimental commander at the time said, I need assault aircraft more than uh, I need attack aircraft. We had all, virtually all of our attack aircraft, AH-6s were already down there. So the AH-6 pilots never missing an opportunity quickly told me that DAPS stood for didn't actually participate or didn't attack Panama. Uh, so, uh, you know, being a second lieutenant, you don't wield a big stick. So I grinned and, uh, you know, took that with a grin. Um, but fortunately for us, Desert Storm happened, you know, just a few months after that. And that particular operation, we were, um, we were selected or we were deployed to interdict the scuds being shot into Israel from Western Iraq. So we based uh, in the far west corner of Saudi Arabia and flew up on the, into Western Iraq to interdict those scuds. Mike Durant was on that mission with me. He was on the opposite. We had two teams of two. We had four of the aircraft then. So we would go up. I was flying on Cliff's wing, Cliff Walcott's wing, one night. And then the other crew, the other team would sit alert for some crews that we had on the ground, some operators we had on the ground up there. So, uh, and we got to do that. It was a great mission, some very challenging flying. And I thought that was the last big one. You know, I thought, wow, Desert Storm, you know, it's never gonna get bigger than this. I mean, we were really fortunate to go on that. And, uh, and then that wrapped up. 
and I was due to transfer actually. So um, I, I finished up my time as a platoon leader and uh, General Downing uh, was the uh, JSOC commander at the time. And he was over there obviously with us when we were flying the DAPs. And he identified me to go to Hurlburt Field, Florida and fly as an exchange pilot with uh, Air Force Special Ops Command. So I did that in um, this November of 92. If you remember, we had, they had a serious accident at Hill Air Force Base, Salt Lake crashed an MH-60, killed a bunch of Rangers um, and uh, some, a crew from that squadron that I ended up going to, the 55th Special Ops Squadron. But loved it, was there from 92 to 96. I met my wife there. Uh, she was an Air Force Intel officer. So in this household, the Army remains a subordinate service to the Air Force. Uh, no matter how much rank I get, that never seems to change. Uh, but uh, that was, you know, obviously a, a high point for me and uh, stayed back in the special ops community and then ended up commanding a battalion over in Germany, a conventional battalion. And special ops, before you can command first of the 160th, you have to command another battalion first, successfully command another battalion. So I did that in Germany. It was great for us. And I was fortunate to be selected as the commander of first to the 160th at Fort Campbell, uh, back to my alma mater there. Uh, did that and then uh, due to a shift in the personnel plan, basically at the end of my command tour for first battalion, I picked up my I love me box and walked down the hallway and took over the regiment from the very capable now Lieutenant General retired Kevin Mangum and commanded the regiment from 2008 to 2010. So great opportunities and, and, you know, I'd have to emphasize, you know, right place, right time. Uh, skill was a minor component of my success and uh, had a great time there, went to the War College and then commanded um, the, I went to Afghanistan for just under a year to stand up the Afghan Special Mission Wing that still exists today. MI-17s and some fixed-wing ISR aircraft that are operating over there. That was a different thing for me, uh, dealing with the Afghans and their politics and also the acquisition process to try to get this thing stood up. But it was very educational for me and very rewarding. And then I came back and commanded Army Special Ops Aviation Command as a one-star at Fort Bragg for a couple of years. And then the Army sent me off to Korea for a year to be the Deputy Commanding General of 2nd Infantry Division. That was a great tour. A uh, lot of PT over there, loved it. And uh, came back to Fort Bragg as the Deputy Commanding General of U.S. Army Special Ops Command. And then uh, ended up my career at uh, SOCOM as the Director of Operations J3 at U.S. SOCOM. So long story there, but that's my, uh, that's my nearly 41 years when I retired. That's incredible. That's probably one of the more impressive careers I've heard about. Just one, just for the breath of it, you know, enlisted, 17 years old, you know, young Marine to holy God. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you got two stars, two stars on your shoulder and, you know, J3 at SOCOM. That's, it's not too shabby. I'll just say that. It's not too shabby. No, it's not. It's certainly, like I said, it certainly wasn't on the training schedule for me. And I'm very fortunate 
And I will say that I served with a lot of very, very fine officers that didn't make a general officer rank that should have and should have over me. Uh, and so I, I accept that praise. Thank you. Very humbly. It's coming from the enlisted side is it's always fascinating. Um, I don't know if politics really plays a whole part, at least on the enlisted side, you know, you, you push out good NCOERs continuously. You, you do, you know, you go through the training, uh, you kind of move up the progression, at least on, on the SF side of the house. Hey, can he do the job of a, of a junior 18 echo? Great. Let's start giving him a little bit of responsibility for the senior. All right. Can you handle it? Okay. Now he takes the senior, he gets his seven and it, you know, so on and so forth. You know, that officer side, it, it is fascinating to me. Um, you know, especially once, once you, you know, get up to that, you know, that field grade and things like that, you know, politics, I, I would imagine politics plays a, a, a much larger role. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm glad I didn't go to OCS. Um, one, I didn't really want to be part of the Army. Um, I, you know, I wanted to go SF. I didn't want to be in the Army. Um, but two, like, it just, you don't have to deal with that. Um, so that it's always fascinating kind of seeing the dichotomy between the enlisted side of the house and the officer side. And you have the, you have the massive benefit of seeing all three sides of the house. So, you know, enlisted warrant and commission. Um, but I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to, to the DAP, um, in desert storm. Uh, so the DAP is a platform that most people, I don't think most people have ever heard of. No, I hadn't, I hadn't until I went through SOTAC, which is uh, the Special Operations Terminal Attack Controller course. So uh, it started off as an Army course. Um, that's where all the CCTs got their JTAC ratings. The Army gave it to the Air Force back in like 2010 or something. And now it's an Air Force course. That's where I went through. And I had never heard of it until, you know, the going through rotary wing capes brief. Um, and we, we, when I was at Campbell, we saw one, um, never got to work with it, you know, because, well, it's one Campbell. But uh, what I wanted to know was when you guys were flying, I mean, what's, did you guys kind of, go the, the army route of seeing, you know, attack aviation as a separate maneuver element, not as a cast platform, even if you were supporting guys on the ground, was, were you guys still, were you still being considered a maneuver element or were you considered a cast platform at that time? Primarily a cast platform. Okay. I, you know, one of my, one of my, uh, mantras when I was in command of the 1st Battalion, 160th and the regiment, uh, what I would frequently tell the guys is, hey, never forget, the only reason we exist is to support that operator on the ground. I don't care if that's a E4 or an O4. It doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, we, we are here to support them. We, everything we do is in direct support of them. Um, so, you know, that's why we exist. Are there times when we operate independently from a ground force? Yes, Desert Storm was a perfect example of that. Sometimes we were in direct support of the guys that were deployed up there doing uh, strategic recce. Other times we were operating independently from them. 
So it went both ways, but primarily our mission is to support the operator on the ground. That's fascinating because, you know, because you, you work in each branch, rotary wing is different. Um, Marine Corps rotary wing is always considered a cast platform, um, always. Uh, mm -hmm. Army aviation is considered a separate maneuver element. Um, so if you're working with Apaches, things like that, you're not giving them five lines or nine lines, you're doing Army attack aviation controls. Um, if you're working with Marine Corps, you're giving them five lines, nine lines, depending on the ordinance and things like that. So that's, that's fascinating because my understanding was that the DAP was designed as a CAS platform. That was the whole, that was the whole you know, idea behind it. So it was kind of a, a break in, in, I guess, Army aviation, especially at the time. Well, it was. It was controversial in some in some quarters, uh, and not and you know, and that controversy started in the one sixtieth. I've I uh, I spent the more flight hours in the DAP, but I also flew the AH six later in my career and have several hundred hours flying uh, little things. And I think it's important to note that they're complementary of each other. Um, an AH six is rapidly deployable very precise uh, and very, very capable, especially in an urban environment. They can turn quickly. Uh, they are, in my humble opinion, some of the best attack helicopter crews on the planet. The DAP filled a gap though. So the AH-6 is limited on airspeed. So a cruise airspeed of a Chinook or a Blackhawk is somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 to 120 knots. An AH-6 cruises somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 knots. So if you think about it, that's a third, you're paying a penalty of a third of the airspeed of an assault platform if you require an escort by AHs, AH-6s. And the senior leadership of the time, at the time in the 160th realized that. They needed an attack platform that was of a similar airspeed to the Chinook and the Blackhawk. And that's why uh, we chose the DAP. You should, you know, the question was asked, well, why wouldn't you just bring Apaches in? And a couple of reasons. One, the Arm and the Blackhawks allowed us the flexibility to turn it into an assault platform if we needed that once we were deployed or before we deployed. And we've done that. In Somalia, most of those crews that were shot down, Cliff Walcott, Mike Durant, they were all DAP crews doing an assault mission at the time. Um, so that's a perfect example of the fl operational flexibility you, you get with that. The other thing is the AH-64 didn't have the right comm suite, communication suite on there, SATCOM, some other things. And they're not as deployable. You know, we have standardized deployment packages of aircraft that we send out and, and an AH-64 didn't fit in those existing packages. It would have been a significant change for us. So that's why we opted to go with the, uh, with the DAP, the MH-60 DAP. And again, it is complementary with the AH-6. I've had the opportunity to get intimately familiar with both, and I think we need both. That's, that's really fascinating. One, that makes sense. Every time I've seen like AH-64s or uh, guys still saying, uh, those are your Apaches, um, Seems like there's 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 a lot of support with those with that airframe too, um, you know, you just in terms of you know ammo handlers and things like that, and you, you know, the fueling points, and there, there's a lot of behind the scenes work with that. Not so, I mean, you still get that with like a with a 
Blackhawk, but I don't think I've never, in my experience, it just seems like it's a fraction of what goes into the 64s. Um, but that's, that's interesting that, that all those crews in Mogadishu were, were DAP crews. So was, Most was them, yeah, almost all of them were, yeah. What, so was the kit like a bolt-on, like, or, okay, so it was, so it was. It was, yeah, we, we started out uh, fairly humble. We had a uh, twin pack of M250s on one side, which did not work well. Those things jammed all the time. I don't ever remember <laughs> shooting a full complement of ammo out of them, firing pins, believe it or not. And the Israelis told us that early on. They said, you're not going to like that M2. We're like, what are you talking about, the M2? And that's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, that thing is, everybody loves that. And they were right. Uh, we got rid of it. So we had a 19-shot rocket pod, a twin pack of M250s, and two miniguns, fixed forward 7.62 for close-in work. Now they, the uh, DAP today can sport up to eight Hellfires. Usually they'll run... Um, a 30 millimeter cannon, the same cannon on the Apache mounted different, 30 millimeter cannon on one side and either a 19 shot rocket pod on one side or a four rack of Hellfires, either blast frags or thermobarics. And uh, the two mini guns uh, fixed forward uh, as well. Uh, so they retain that capability. So that's a lot of firepower to bring to a fight, especially for, especially for a cast platform. Um, it, you know, I understand they, 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 the one sixtieth is there to support certain units. Mm -hmm. um, SF, we get to SF, we get to work with the one sixtieth. Um, we get to do a lot of training with them and things like that, but we don't really see their assets overseas. Um, so that that's incredible. You know, the idea that you can bring in, you know, four four Hellfires that the 19 shot pods and you know nowadays rockets the rocket technology is leaps and bounds where it was just 10 years ago with you know things yeah. like your your you know your your basically we won't go into details but now you have smart rockets um yeah, and guided rockets that are developing now which cut down on how many you shoot i mean we shot more the 160th when i was there flying operationally, we shot more rockets than all of Army aviation combined. <laughs> that's incredible. That's a lot of rockets. That's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to mention something to you, or mention, respond to one comment you made. There are certainly parts of the uh, 160th, but units within the 160th that work exclusively um, with uh, CT focused units, but I, you know, 4160 based out of a JBLM up in Washington State and 3160 in Savannah, Georgia, and 2160 out of Campbell are really were created to support SF, SEALs, Marine Raiders, uh, and, and special tactics. Have we always done that as much as we should have in the past? No but it was a focus of my time as a regimental commander to do just that, that I didn't want the haves and the have nots. So we really tried to up our um, support for SF and there's a process, an air allocation process that goes through SOCOM. In fact, I was just on the horn with some guys from 19th group who were out there in Washington, Idaho area, telling them to ask for 4160 
uh, to support them and how to do it. And what I found though was that a lot of SF units didn't ask, and they've been told no for so long that they just didn't bother asking. And that was one of my priorities when I was the regimental commander was, I visited every SF group and said, hey, you gotta ask. If you don't generate a demand signal, you're never gonna work with us. And so hopefully that's, I think it is better now than it was. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, we never had any issues training with with 160 it just always seemed like whatever ao we were operating in right. um, and it, it's and hard I, to get there's just not, not enough even, to go around no there isn't it's not even it's not even the i wouldn't even say it's the fall of the regiment um it, it's just the nature of the of the beast who needs that asset and there's an allocate you know everybody has to wait their turn and there's definitely a pecking order um so yeah it's not so much just a uh a hard feelings kind of situation. It's just no, like, no, no, I agree. I just yeah, it, I did it, want everybody to know out there that we are, you know, we are doing, you're right, we don't determine asset allocation. That's done by the Geographic Combatant Command, SOCOM, uh, you know, like my old boss, uh, General Brown, when he was my battalion commander, he used to say, hey, we fly for pay and we fly every day with everything we can fly. And who we fly for is not our decision. I like it. That, that's a that's a pretty simple command. Uh, oh, that philosophy or something. Philosophy. Thank you. Wow, it, it was a late night. Late night of work. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was. Uh, but no, that's that's real. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, incredible career. Just really on the cutting edge of of really pushing Army aviation to to that that's a totally new you know realm and it's something that nobody really ever foresaw um so that's incredible i was surprised to hear you know like clint walcott uh was was intimately uh involved in that and that's kind of cool that you that you had it, it wasn't like it wasn't like a big brain trust in in washington that came up and, and really helped facilitate this. It was guys on the ground like you and, and operational pilots that, that really brought, you know, something to fruition. That's, I think, is a testament to why it's such an effective platform. Yeah, I think that, you know, clearly uh, Special Ops, as you know, Nick, is a bottoms-up type of organization. Uh, we, you know, the best operational advancements we've had have come from the bottom. If I had to pick one person in my mind that uh, was responsible for the success of the DAP. Number one, it was Cliff Walcott. Uh, he, he was a Cobra pilot in the 229th attack aviation before he came over and transitioned to Hawks. And he started flying assault. And then when the attack, this, this idea was floated about building this aircraft, um, he, he took the, he took the lead on it. He was in the R and the OT and E operational test and evaluation part of that. And he, and he was critical to the success. I, we did the initial range validations and shooting. I flew with him countless hours on the range. And he, again, he gets the credit. I, you know, I was the platoon leader and played a small part in making sure that he had what he needed and the rest of the pilots. Mike Durant was in that crew several others uh that are you know have achieved some noteworthy status but uh, cliff was the was the primary guy that stood up to dap capability oh that's that's incredible that's that's an, that's an awesome story um and, and again i can't 
overstate how cool of a platform it is. If you guys haven't seen it, just Google it. All the images are super dated. Uh, you, I guarantee you won't see the newest iteration, um, but it's it's definitely a mean looking aircraft. Those little stubby wings coming off and those mini guns just fixed forward. It, it's, it's pretty gnarly, I will say that. But, all right, so incredible career, but your career really didn't end when you retired from, from the Army. Um, you, you really have made kind of a, a second wind in, in nonprofit work with, one, the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, which I'll let you, I'll let you plug that because it's probably one of, in the community, it's probably, it's the primo NPO. Uh, uh, the one that guys know, the one that 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 everybody loves. Uh, so I, I want to hear about that. But you you also sit on the advisory board for the Gary Sinise Foundation, which is also uh, an incredible uh, nonprofit. So kind of going, you, you left the army. I mean, what what drew you to to nonprofit work? Well, that's a that's an interesting, a good question. Uh, and it, it, like like I told you earlier, you know, being a general officer was never my goal. Uh, working in a nonprofit wasn't necessarily my goal either. I uh, I was getting ready to retire, and I was going through that whole process, you know, with the VA and all those kind of things. Um, and one of my mentors called me one day and asked me, "Would you be interested in running a non? Do you have any? I think his quote was, "Do you have any interest in running a nonprofit?" And I hadn't really considered that question or that option, and but one of my other mentors had said, never say never and always, you know, learn more. And that's what I said. Uh, you know, I hadn't really put a lot of thought into it, but I'm certainly open to the idea of learning more about it. You know, and it's funny, opportunity presents itself in, in, at times and places in ways that you would have never thought. And uh, Vice Admiral retired Joe McGuire, a Navy SEAL, was leaving uh, the Special Ops Warrior Foundation after five years of great work uh, to serve the Trump administration as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And he needed to be replaced. So I, uh, with several other flag officers, competed for the position and was selected. And I will tell you, I couldn't have asked for a better, more rewarding job when I left the service. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of discussion about the transition and and really it's more of getting detached from your team or your units and the people you're used to working with men and women are used to working with. Uh, the special ops warrior foundation is an exceptional organization again due to the work of uh, first john carney as the president and ceo and then joe mcguire and now i'm continuing their good work but we fulfill a critical need for the special operations community and uh, it allows me to stay in touch with those that I serve with in a very positive way, being there for them when they've had a loss or a wounding. And uh, I would love to share with you some of the programs we have, just because I want you know I want people to understand what's out there. And when you're deployed, you know uh, that we got your back. So absolutely, uh, absolutely. feel free. That this okay. is what this is for. Well, the. So a little, just a short blip on the history. Most people don't know this. The Special Ops Warrior Foundation was previously named the Bull Simon Scholarship Foundation. It's over 40 years old. Last April, 
was our 40, last April 24th was our 40th anniversary. Oh, wow. So the special ops community, you know, we all remember Desert One, less so outside of the special ops community, but Desert One was when the, uh, the mission to rescue 52 American hostages held in Tehran failed. And it was during a, refu a ground refueling uh, operation where a helicopter crashed into the back of a, of a C-130 while trying to refuel. That crash resulted in the death of eight Americans, three Marines and five uh, airmen, five Air Force uh, enlisted officers. Those eight left behind 17 kids. And so the, there was a battlefield promise, uh, for lack of a better term, that was made by the other members of that uh, task force, that they were gonna pass the hat and they would take care of those 17 kids. And they did just that. So they, uh, they, we, they funded the education of those 17 children and that mission has continued and expanded today. And today we have just under 900 kids in our program, some from a few months old and some getting ready to graduate college. And we really have two main missions. And I'll start with our financial support to immediate financial support to special operators that are wounded, injured, or become seriously ill. And we use the term severely and severely is defined as requiring inpatient hospitalization. So if you get, you know, if you bump your head and you get stitches and you're RTD, okay, you're not getting a 5K check from the Special Ops Warrior Foundation. So, you know, but if you're hospitalized for one of those reasons, illness, an injury, or a wound, we will overnight a check to wherever you're at. Uh, sometimes it's made out to the SOCOM Care Coalition LNO right there that can cash it for you or to your spouse. And, it's, and we do that to offset unforecast medical expenses or unforecast expenses. For instance, you got to fly your mom in to watch your kids. You got to put your dog in the kennel, something like that. It's just an immediate $5,000 check that uh, is overnighted. We also send a uh, device called an Echo Show, which is like an Alexa type device with a video capability that you can, is voice activated so they can communicate with their loved ones while they're in the hospital. Or they can stream videos uh, for those that are in for a long time uh, in the hospital. And we get a lot of positive feedback. I got two notes last week from folks. We asked them, they said, hey, we don't need a lot, but if just tell us, is this worth it? Do you, you know. Is it useful? And, and the results have been yes. We appreciate that echo show. If they're in the hospital for an extended period of time and there's a need, we'll send a second check. Um, and that is the Care Coalition helps us uh, out of SOCOM by determining that need. So that's our immediate financial assistance program. Our main effort is our education of the children of special operators that are killed in the line of duty. Or, and there's two other classes that we cover those families. Those that are uh, working for special ops. So if you're opcon to special ops when you're killed, Shannon Kent's a perfect example, the Navy chief that was killed in that bombing in Syria along with three others. Uh, Jonathan Farmer was a fifth group uh, guy that was with her. Um, her kids are covered by us because she, she had a command relationship with special ops. And there's numerous others. 
Yeah, Joe sports. Kent. Joe Kent's a uh, he's a friend of the podcast. Oh, great! So her, yeah. their kids are covered. Um, today is the extortion. One seven was shot down August sixth, and there was a conventional Chinook crew that was a mixture of National Guard and Reserve that were flying the seals that day that were killed. Thirty one Americans were killed. They're covered. All their kids, that Army Air Crew kids, are covered by us. So. And our program is unique. A lot of people default, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people default that we are a college scholarship program. And that is certainly a very important part of what we do, but not nearly all we do. So our program starts in preschool. We've done the research and statistically, a kid that goes to a very quality preschool, a high quality preschool, uh, has a much higher probability of pursuing an advanced education. So we pay up to 8K per year per child for preschool. And that's starting at age two. And we was age three and about a year ago, we changed to age two because the Montessori Academy will start them at age two. Uh, we pay for that. <clears throat> From preschool all the way through college graduation, we pay for unlimited tutoring. You, it doesn't matter. Uh, SAT prep, ACT prep, tutoring all through elementary, uh, middle, and high school, and into college, and in preschool if you need it. So we pay for that. Um, we pay for uh, college visits, for the uh, student and a guardian to go visit different colleges. We bring about, we bring our, we try to bring between 20 and 30 of our sophomore, high school sophomores or juniors to Tampa every year for a week-long conference called EPIC, Education Preparation Information Conference. We pay for everything, all their transport. They stay at the University of Tampa. The University of Tampa generously donates their dorms. We give them classes on financial management, time management, how to select a major, what's the right school for you, how to write your essay for your application to college, and a lot of team building uh, opportunities with them. And we, our graduates, many of our graduates volunteer to serve as mentors and they live in the dorms with them. So they're gold star kids themselves and they live in a dorm with our kids. And of course we, we fund all of their college. We don't ask them to go to other charities and get money. We do ask them to use a portion of their VA benefits. But other than that, we, we cover it all. And that includes expenses uh, that are, you know, miscellaneous expenses. We provide a computer, printer, all those kind of sort of that initial setup as well. And we also, we pay for study abroad and we fund internships. We believe that internships are very, very important for these kids in college. I've got three sons. My oldest is, is in an internship right now with John Deere. And that, you know, ends up being a... Um, you know, I think it'll end up being a career for him. So we and we are we are, we strongly believe that these internships are going to be very helpful to these kids, and we have organizations that help set up their LinkedIn, their social media that are free to the kids. We pay for help them with their resumes, and again, study abroad. What an opportunity! So we will fund study abroad for those kids. Basically, so we call it a cradle to career approach. We also fund the education of 
Medal of Honor, living Medal of Honor recipients that are associated with special ops. There's four of them out there, two Army, Leroy Petrie's one, Matt Williams is one, Brit Slabinski, Ed Byers, uh, the two SEALs. So their kids are also covered on those same programs. And we also have a special needs program. We have a small number, maybe a dozen or less, of our kids that are never going to go to college uh, due to some sort of uh, some sort of challenge they have. So we we are very very flexible on supporting the special needs requirements of those kids, and I'm the approval authority. Uh, so you know it comes to me, and it, you know and it falls outside of those programs I just told you, uh, but is even remotely educational for them or helps in their socialization and all those things will pay for that. So that's our educational programs. Uh, we do all of this um, in a very fiscally responsible manner. So we've, if you're familiar with it, there's an organization called Charity Navigator that evaluates charities out there. I, I am, yeah. Yeah, the highest rating you can get is a four-star rating. We've had a four-star rating for 14 years consecutive. Uh, they count us as a best practice and as a top 1% of military charities. Um, and I'll, just a couple more things I wanna cover. Um, one is the success. So I, you know, we, our, our organization is 16 people. It's relatively small. Six of the 16 are full-time education counselors that deal with those families. And they start with that kid in preschool and they go all the way through college. So they develop a relationship with them. They're like their, their second mothers out there. I mean, they're very protective of them and they keep very close tabs on them. So last year, 90%, or in the last several years, 90% of our kids, um, our Gold Star kids, went immediately to college when they graduated high school, 90%. That's well over 20% above the national average. Last year, uh, between 92 and 93% of our kids graduated between four and five years from college, which is over 30% above the national average. And that's an impressive statistic. And I take no credit for that. I give that credit to our scholarships and family outreach folks that really have a passion for helping our kids. But think about it. These are kids that are most likely in a single parent home. They've underwent a very traumatic loss in their family. And statistically, the odds are stacked against them. Uh, to achieve this success in our life. And, you know, if something, I can only speak for myself here, but if something happened to me, my one wish is that someone would make sure that my kids have this type of opportunity to reach their full potential. You know, people ask us, is, is there still a need? Well, we went from those 17 kids in 1980 to almost 900 kids in our program right now. And, I, you know, and we talked a little bit before we started, some of them are getting ready to graduate college, but uh, Dustin Ard was killed last year. He's the third group, uh, Sergeant First Class and third group. He was killed late last year, I believe August. I went through the Q course with, with Ard. Good okay, guy. so this will resonate with you. His son was born January 4th, Dustin Gabriel Ard, several months after he was killed. And he was, and he's part of our family. And our our education counselors have told me he is graduate college graduation class 2043. So for every time we lose someone, and I forgot to mention this, 
we proactively reach out to these families within 60 days of the death of their loved one. We ask them to fill out an information sheet which basically says your name, your birthday, and how we can get a hold of you. And that's it. You don't fill out an application every year. You don't have to do an essay for a scholarship. You're in the program and you're part of it. And uh, we take it from there. Um, but, you know, our programs with, uh, with young Dustin are, are starting now. And we're going to be with him until he graduates college in 2043. And that's, I mean, that's incredible. What that, that's kind of a one-off. That's a one-off in the world. It's a unique approach, right? So we take a very holistic approach to taking care of these kids. And there is personal accountability. You know, you've got to maintain a 2.0 GPA because I believe personally that they've got to have a little skin in the game. They've got to have some personal accountability. Uh, and if, they, if they're struggling, we help them with tutoring. We, we give them a lot of coaching. And then at last resort for us is we suspend them for a year if they just won't pull up their GPA and say, come back to us in a year with a written plan of how you're, it's going to be different this time. And our, and our kids that don't finish college is an extremely small percentage in the single digits. And again, I give all the credit to our scholarships and family outreach team that, you know, that are with them every step of the way. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that it's, it's like you said, I think it's something that a lot of people would overlook, like who, who, who thought of it that way, you know, the family's grieving, things like that, but you're right. You know, all of a sudden these kids are thrust into a set of circumstances that exactly. where, where now success isn't so much guaranteed, you know, it's like you, a single parent household. Yeah. Things are tough. You know, if, if money's tight, kids feel like they need to, get a job, you know, support the family, you know, it, it, at that point, they're just, you know, kind of working themselves out of an opportunity. So providing those resources, I would say is one, it's incredibly admirable. Um, two, I think it's very timely and relevant. And, and three, I, it's something that somebody needed to do. And I did not know that it started, um, you know, 40 years ago. Almost yeah. forty, almost forty years ago to the day with, with Desert One, you know the anniversary yeah. fast approaching. They were back at Oman, that you know that Amasira, that island off the coast of Oman, which was the FSB, and they they passed the hat and it's okay, we're going to do this, and that was the beginning. Uh, and uh, you know, and there's a lot of great charities out there, and there's a lot of great things to support, and you know, people should follow their passion. But if they want to know more about us, it's pretty easy. It's specialopsops.org. So specialops.org is our website. All of our financial documents are on there. Our testimonies are on there. Uh, Alejandro Villanueva did a quote for us. He did My Cause, My Cleats last year where they paint their cleats. Yeah. He's a PL in the First Ranger Battalion. And I looked at him. I met him. I went to their training camp last year, and the dude's like six eight. Oh, and yeah. I said, "Big boy, yeah, you're restricted from little birds, buddy." And there is. <laughs> I said, "I don't even know if I could squeeze you in a blackhawk." And he said, "Blackhawks aren't bad. It's those Humvees, you know, when you got your body armor and your ammo and everything." I said, "I mean, he is a monster. Number seventy eight on the Steelers works the blind side uh, on the offensive line. Great guy. But it's right there on our website. There's a." Gary Sinise did a video for us, and then right below that is a quote from uh, Alejandro, just a great American. 
Fantastic. Guys, go ahead and check out uh, specialops.org. Um, you guys, uh, the, the, page, the Patreon contributions to the podcast this month, is, they'll be going to, uh, to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation uh, to continue the, the great work that, that they're doing. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you don't ask these kids to give up their fathers and best friends. We don't, as a country, we try not to, to ask them to do that, but sometimes that's exactly what they're forced to do. Uh, so the, the least that, that we can do is, is, is support this great cause. But General, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, this has been phenomenal listening about your, learning about your career, learning about the work you guys were doing uh, on, on the nonprofit side. I, I can't thank you enough. I, the community, you know, absolutely thanks you uh one for your service but two for your continued service um it, it's nice knowing in the community that if something does happen that somebody's going to have your back so that's our job and that's why we come to work every single day and we got a passion for it it's all that you can ask so guys if if if, if you're listening uh on on itunes spotify go ahead and uh, i do the standard plug here Go ahead and leave the five-star review. If you guys are watching on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe. I hate saying it, but it helps the algorithms push this product onto unsuspecting people when they open up their, their, YouTube, uh, their YouTube pages, and, and we can start spreading the knowledge a, a little further and a little wider. Uh, like I said, you guys can check out specialops.org uh, if you guys are inclined to donate uh, to, the, to the foundation because uh, they, they, they are a... a an incredible asset to the community. So I, I ask that you do consider that. General, once again, thank you so much. And uh, if you ever want to come back on the podcast, it's always an open invitation. You guys are doing something with the, with the foundation. You want to talk about it. Any of my guests are always welcome back. Okay. Hey, thanks. Maybe uh, we'd invite one of our gold star kids to come on, uh, you know, from the community and talk about what, you know, what that's meant to them. I mean, they, that's who you really want to listen to, not an old codger like myself. Though so I will come on and uh, and disparage Mike Durant every chance I get. <laughs> oh, I man. he's listening out there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sharon. Absolutely, we'll we'll set that up because uh, I think that'd be eye opening and enlightening for a lot of people. So we will absolutely set it up. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of the day, sir. You too, sir. Thanks. <laughs>